Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin a new series for the Christmas or Advent season called Christmas Through the Gospels. And what we're going to essentially do is each week take a look at each one of the Gospels and, and find some significance in this season for the coming of Jesus Christ and how that helps us to look forward to his second coming. And so today we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 and Stephanie's going to read for us this morning. Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. I'm sure at all of your Christmas gatherings, this is one of the first passages that you pull out. Let the kids read all the names and see how well they're doing in their reading skills at school. That's why I let Stephanie read this morning and not me, to stay out of any conflicts over the pronunciation of any of these names. But why is it that Matthew has captured this? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But I would imagine that this week... Uh, no matter where your family is or even just your own relationship to your family, there has probably been a lot of thought given to your family's history, your family line, so to speak. I know that uh, in watching some football over the weekend, there have been numerous commercials for uh, things like 23andMe, Ancestry, your DNA, all these kinds of things. I don't know about you, but I want to stay away from all of that. Don't put me on the grid any more than I already am. But around your table, it would not be uncommon to talk about stories of loved ones past, of family not able to gather with, maybe even hear stories of 
uh, crazy things that have happened in the past. I know for our family, uh, there is a particular version of my mom known as Kobe Grimmy. And Kobe Grimmy is off the hook. She spills all the family tea. She starts telling all the stories like how she was engaged before she met my dad. And you should have seen my daughter's response to that. Like, dad, did you know this? I was like, yes, I knew this. It's not uncommon to retell family stories. Mom, I just want you to know I said that as payback for whatever you said last night at last Sunday at the Prices Community Group in their parenting group. Uh, So you can ask her about that previous engagement. Why is it that Matthew would include something like this? And why is it that in this time of Christmas lights and family ornaments and memories going on trees, why would we take the time in this most wonderful time of the year to start with a passage like Matthew 1, 1 through 17? Well, it's because this. Matthew is demonstrating the prophecies that predicted Jesus' birth have historical roots and that Jesus is powerful enough to save and keep his promises. We're going to see an intentionality of the purposes of God in this passage today, even through this unexpected family tree. We're going to see the intentionality of God coming to rescue us, to be his people, to be drawn into his family, to be able to be joined with this family line because of the Savior who has come. So as we look at Matthew's genealogy, we want to just acknowledge that this is not Matthew attempting to call out members of the family. This isn't him sin-shaming, it's mercy celebrating in the midst of this passage. He's celebrating the mercy of God that even those who are undeserving find favor with the Most High. Even through unexpected ways. Now, if you and I were to try to come up with some genealogy for royalty, I would imagine that we would start to think through certain things like their character qualities, certain things about them like that they would need to be, well, they need to be faithful people, that they would need to have integrity in their dealings, that they'd need to be maybe courageous. There's a number of things that we might think of to say this is a person that deserves to be a part of a royal line. Maybe it's worth taking just a moment to think about that. What would make up the character of somebody? Would it be their dignity, their integrity? Would would it be their their own nobility, the way they carry themselves? What would be the things that we would choose to make up a royal line? And what we realize here is that the things that God has chosen are unexpected and surprising. In the same way that the salvation that has been promised to us is unexpected and surprising. Now, we might want to note just some significant names along the way. Not only does Matthew acknowledge that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but he starts with the son of David. He starts with the son of David. This is the king whose line God promised to establish for all of time. And so, right out of the gate, Matthew is making royal claims about Jesus. He then moves to Abraham. This is the one that God promised blessing would come to the whole world. And then we see names like Isaac, Abraham's son, who was a miracle baby born to Sarah, shocked to find out that she would be able to have a child. And what we realize is that this supernatural birth for Mary, who was also pretty shocked that she was going to have a child, is set up by the supernatural birth of Abraham. 
Then we see the first woman mentioned, we see Tamar. This would be unusual for the day to include a woman's name, but she is the first woman mentioned here. Tamar is from Genesis chapter 38. She was Judah's daughter-in-law, and it was sinful incest that led to the birth of the twins mentioned in verse 3, Perez and Zariah. All of a sudden, this royal line has some more than patina on it. There seems to be some kind of tarnish. The second woman mentioned in the Bible, Rahab, was a prostitute who was spared when the people of God came to the promised land. Ruth is the third woman mentioned. She was a Moabite. They were a people known for their sexual immorality who at one time were forbidden to even come into the assembly of God's people. Now, let, let me just remind you, we're not sin-shaming here. We are celebrating the mercy of God. We're reminded that no matter our past, the good news of the gospel is big enough to overcome whatever you've walked through in this life. Yeah, this is where we're being stretched as a church, isn't it? Is the gospel big enough for the people that are coming in to our gatherings? And the answer is a wholehearted, sovereign, heavenly, yes, it is. And this passage reminds us of that today. In the second set of 14, we see a woman not explicitly named. The wife of Uriah, it says. This is Bathsheba. So here we have this celebration of David. The one whose kingly line would, line would rule forever, and yet we're reminded that it was David's adultery and murder that led to Bathsheba being included in this line. Then we pick up with Solomon, and Matthew lists the kings in Israel leading up to exile. A few of these kings honor the Lord, to be sure, but many of them were evil, leading the people of God into sin and idolatry. All of a sudden, this tarnish on the family line is beginning to look like utter corruption. In our theological understanding of our faith, we would see that we are all people who fall short of the glory of God. And we all desperately need the Savior that we welcome this time of year. Now when I say that we're looking at the history, I don't mean the history of December 21st being or December 25th being Jesus' actual birthday, what I'm talking about is the historical ancestry that set up the purposes and the plans of God. The second group of 14 generations would have sparked images and emotions and stories in the minds of the Jewish readers who would have known their Old Testament well. We should be able to connect with some of these things, even as we hear different aspects of this story. In the third set of 14 generations, that's verses 12 through 16, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy from the deportation of Babylon to the birth of Jesus Christ. And what's the point of his review? What's the point of Matthew taking this kind of time and intentionality? Is it just to show that he's some kind of math whiz and that he can do the math and show three sets of 14 and that's what adds up to Jesus? No. What he wants to do is he wants to introduce us to this king who has come. He wants to introduce Jesus as king, and that this king is also the savior that has come. But when Matthew attaches the name of Christ to Jesus' name, he's telling us that this is the Messiah that we have been longing for. When we learn of Jesus' royal identity, we realize that in Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of old. And he is the point of any prophecy today. And this is where we want to be sure as a church that we are thinking rightly about the good news of the gospel. To see the gospel 
that we are sinners who need a Savior, that Jesus Christ is the Savior that we need. It's through His blood, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension alone that we have any access to the Father. But that gospel, that good news is big enough to take our past. It's big enough to take the past of those sitting around us this morning. It's big enough to take the past of that coworker, that schoolmate, that family member that we'll invite in in the weeks ahead. See, Matthew is methodically introducing us to a kingdom, not just that's going to be here to rule and reign with an iron fist. He's introducing us to a kingdom that is filled with hope. This is a hope-filled kingdom. This is actually a theme that's going to be prominent throughout the rest of the book. He's not just introducing Jesus' royalty and then kind of moving on from that. He is saying he is the royal king over a kingdom and that we are invited into. Let me highlight just a few things that you'll see. It, it takes about an hour and 20 minutes to sit and read at the average reading, an hour and 20 minutes to read the entire book of Matthew. There are a number of themes in here, but there are a few that you're going to see. There's the gospel. This is the message that is proclaimed of this kingdom's good news. The central message in the mouth of Jesus is clear. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come. It's drawn near to you. What other themes would we see in there? Well, we'll see discipleship. What is it that happens with the citizens of this kingdom? What's so significant about the citizenship in this kingdom? Being a part of this. Being a part of the people that make up this kingdom. Well, in Matthew 5 through 7 which we refer to often as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by telling us what kingdom citizens are like. This will be the theme in the new year for our 21 days of prayer and our week of fasting in January. What else does he look at? He looks at discipleship. What, what are the decrees of the kingdom? What are the, the claims that are made on the life of the people? It's this, that following the king is costly. This is a key focus for our church in the new year. But more than that, there is hope of the kingdom coming. See, in, in Matthew, we get this kind of wonderful, vivid picture of the dual nature of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, the kingdom of God is a present reality. The great announcement of the book of Matthew is that the king is here. This is why this genealogy matters so much. Jesus Christ has broken into a dark and hurting world. He brings healing and forgiveness for us. He binds up the brokenhearted. He gives rest to those who are weary. He gives sight to those who are blind. And to those who are dead in their sin, he gives new life. On the other hand, Matthew is also showing us that this kingdom is a future reality as well. Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the grave before departing from his disciples promising to return. In other words, for you and I today, the king is coming back. At his first coming, Jesus came as a crying baby, unexpected to be sure, through a genealogy that's unexpected to be sure. But at his second coming, Jesus will come as the crowned king of this kingdom. And we've seen in Matthew's genealogy that it's so much more than a list of names or a simple historical record of first century Jewish people for the readers of that day. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of promises of old. And it gives us a picture of how it is that God saves. If we were to consider the birth of Jesus as just this isolated event, we would think, well, Jesus is powerful. 
That, that's, that's pretty powerful. Surely the, the virgin birth would require divine power. But when we learn from Matthew that the virgin birth was rooted in history and it was anticipated in prophecies of old, we learn that Jesus is not only powerful, but he's faithful. And that faithfulness is directed to you and to me today. He's not only powerful, he's faithful. This is what gives us such strong assurance when we read passages like 1 Thessalonians, which we closed out our service in last week, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He is not only faithful, but he is what? Able. Gives us hope and assurance, doesn't it? Matthew tells us at least two things in this opening section about the nature of God's salvation. First of all, he tells us that God saves only by his sovereign grace. This favor that we receive, this unmerited favor that we receive, this grace that we don't deserve, this, this blessing and this disposition toward us is not something that is born from us or our experiences or anything that we bring to the table. It is his sovereign grace alone. The list of names in verses 1 through 17 is full of both good and evil kings, sinful men and women. Clearly, then, Jesus came not because of Israel's righteousness, but in spite of Israel's sinfulness. And that's good news for us today. See, God alone could so intentionally work through history and yet still accomplish what he set out to do, rescuing a people to himself. Only God could see that through. He wasn't creating all of these new plans along the way. This was a part of his plan from the beginning. He's not looking at these twists and turns, what we might see as some kind of knotted up, crazy family tree and saying, I need to make some adjustments along the way so that we can eventually get to Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to reveal something about myself through these years and years of longing and waiting. And he's revealing that to us today as well. These names tear down any sense of superiority that leads to salvation. Any type of purity that you and I think that we bring to the table, whether that be, in this case, sexual or racial purity, leads to being uh, someone who is worth being rescued. It just tears down at that. It says there's no place for that in your salvation. There's nothing that you bring to this table. The basis of our salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That alone is the basis of our salvation. Not anything in our history, not anything in our heritage, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the first thing that it shows us, that God saves by his sovereign grace. What's the second thing that we see here? God saves us for his purposes throughout the globe. He came for and through the morally outcast. And Jesus came for and through the ethnically diverse. Matthew shows us repeatedly that Jesus fulfills God's promise to bless his chosen people. And today, Matthew is showing us that that, that chosen people goes far beyond the nation of Israel. It's gone global through the blood of the Lamb. And it includes you and me today. Should we simply receive his invitation to come? You know, as I've been prepping, 
this cliche, at least I understood it to be a cliche. I was talking with the band earlier, and I realized that only one other person in the band, I think it was, that had heard it before, uh, Caleb Cook may have. Uh, it wasn't clear as we were talking, but I realized that this was something I've heard growing up in the church, and, and perhaps you've heard it too, and if not, uh, let me copyright it for myself today, that if Satan is reminding you of your past, just remind him of his future. It's a great line, but I think it falls a little bit short. What do I mean by that? Yeah. Lo, his doom is sure, the hymn writers say. There's a certain future that Satan has, and it's not victorious. But when Satan tries to remind you of your past, let the blood of Jesus tell you what your future looks like. Because it's glorious. It's victorious. It's something that we get to celebrate in this time of year and all throughout our lives. See, this is what connects us to the hope that we celebrate in this Advent season. While we wait in celebrating his first coming, as we wait for his second coming, this is what allows us to have hope. When we see this history, it does not drag us down. It lifts us up in hope to see the glorious king who's coming again. And let that inform the way that we celebrate this season. When you're tempted to focus on your past, the good king invites you to be reminded of your future in him. The hymn writers would say it this way. When Satan tempts me to despair, he tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because my sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him pardon me. That is confident hope. That's Advent hope. As we look back to Jesus' first coming, eagerly awaiting his second coming and saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We had a funny exchange with my nephew on Thursday. It was the first year he was going to get to sit at one of the big tables. And he was pretty excited. And so he came in a little early to claim his spot. Me and my boys were sitting there watching, and that's a dangerous combination. Me and the boys just sitting there watching, saying, something funny's happening. Let's take advantage of this moment. And Grandpa was sitting there, too. And so here comes Leon. And he goes, and he sits right at the head of the table. And he said, I wanted to make sure I picked out a good spot. <laughs> that was a good spot, buddy but it ain't yours. <laughs> he sure did pick out a good spot. He was so excited. But it was the first year he'd been invited to sit at one of the big tables. And you know what? There's something precious in that, isn't there? What table have you been invited to sit at? You have been invited to sit at the table of the king of kings for all of eternity. Let me ask you a question, though. What table are you actually sitting at today? Are you feasting on the things of the world? Are you gorging yourself at a lesser table with this open invitation to the table of the king? See, no matter where we're at in life, no matter how things are with our immediate or our extended family, we all long to be in close relationship 
with the God of the universe and sit near to him at a table, don't we? Without any fear. How do we do that? Well, the invitation to follow Jesus was offered to Matthew. And Matthew staked everything on Christ. Many of the other disciples had other, other industries that they could go back into, but not Matthew. Matthew gave up everything. He gave up lucrative career. He gave up all of these things to follow Christ. And here's the truth for us today. When, when someone puts all their trust in God, God will never turn his back on them. When we put all of our trust in God, God will never turn his back on us. Jesus is the only one who can bring us to the king's table without any shame. Jesus is the only one who can bring us into that place that we all long to be. Not filling ourselves with the thing of the world. So let me ask you gathered here today, like the crowds that we will see later on in Matthew. Will you casually observe Jesus and not come to his table? Like the religious and governmental leaders of the day, will you reject him altogether? Or like the disciples, will you unconditionally follow Jesus? See, this is an invitation extended to us. So what does it look like to actually receive that gift of salvation? Well, we live in a day where Christianity that seems to come and go with whatever is going on in our lives or discipleship that's not intentional and faithful or, or rampant. See, true disciples are courageous enough to rise up and declare this. You are king. And because you are king, there are no conditions to, on my obedience to you. I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will give you whatever you ask of me. I will abandon all I have. Because all I am is yours. You're the king, and you are worthy of nothing less. That's the heart of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We'll have the opportunity to rejoice with a young lady in just a few moments who's publicly making this declaration through baptism this morning. But first, can we stand and sing together and then come to the table of the Lord through communion as we receive his invitation to come and be near. If you want to participate with us in communion, go ahead and stand. Our ushers are going to bring elements by. If you weren't able to grab some earlier, just raise your hand and they'll bring elements by to you now. Father God, we pray that you would give us the strength as we consider your good purposes throughout history, drawing us near to yourself. We pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts in ways that we've closed off areas of our lives to say, this is mine, God's not big enough for that. Or this is mine, I'm not prepared to give that over to him fully. Would you help us to see that you are not only the promise maker, you are the promise keeper. Would you help us to see, even as Satan tempts us to despair, how it is that we can look to you and find salvation in you alone. In Jesus' name.